Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on one of the teams sort of in the middle of the Eastern Conference playoff hunt, the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm here today with Andrew Buchanan. And Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Nick. It's really great to be here. Thanks for coming on. So let's get started by talking briefly about the Bucks offseason. And their biggest name acquisitions were Mirza Toledovic and Matthew Delavadova. Now, Delavadova has started most of the games for Milwaukee this season, has recently been moved to the bench in favor of one of the other players we'll be discussing quite shortly in this offseason review. But how has he looked so far in his first season in Milwaukee? Obviously, Delavadova was behind Kyrie Irving and on the Cavs. But once he came to the Bucks, he was obviously thrust into that starter role. And we've all been very pleased, I think. A lot of Buck fans that I've talked to have been pleased with how he moves the ball because he adds that secondary ball handler to Giannis. So Giannis's new point guard position, there's not too much pressure that sits on his shoulders with Deli around. The interesting thing about Deli Vdova is that his three-point shooting, which was his hallmark in Cleveland, and granted his looks were a lot more open in Cleveland, he has not been that same level shooter so far this year. He's currently shooting 32% from three-point range. And is that just a factor of him not getting as many open looks, or is he just sort of on a cold streak? I've been wondering that same thing too, because Giannis does have a lot of gravity. He obviously doesn't have the gravity of LeBron James, but Giannis and Jabari as well can get into the paint almost at will. I think Delhi, honestly, he's missed a lot of open shots. And I would say as of now, it's just a cold streak. Maybe he's feeling that pressure of being a starter. And he was out recently with an injury, hence Brogdon has been starting recently. So I still have faith, especially since we signed him to a four-year contract. I think that he can pick up his play and at least get his three-point percentage to around 35-36%, which is honestly all that we need, especially considering how he's so good on defense, controlling other point guards, you know, not allowing them to get too much into a rhythm, stuff like that. You talked about his passing. He is averaging a career high of five and a half assists per game. He's also playing the most minutes per game he has in his NBA career. Right. But regarding his three-point shooting, his career low prior to this season was... 36.8%. So I think it does seem reasonable that he would at least return to league average levels rather than be below average like he has so far this season. Now moving on to their other veteran acquisition in Mirza Toledovic, he's shooting 39.6% from the field overall, but I think that's incredibly misleading because he's shooting 37.5% from three, and he's taking the vast majority of his shots from three-point range. Oh yeah, almost all of the shots are threes. Yeah. That's. I was talking to a Suns fan because I wanted to see what we were getting with Mirza Toledovic, and he said, you will either love Mirza or you will hate him. And honestly, that's how it's been. There was one game earlier this year against the Wizards, I believe, where he went 7 of 9 from 3, and then there was another game against the Cavs where he went 0 for 6. And it's honestly, it's frustrating, but at the same time, you know that he can have those streaks where he will hit 3, 4, or 5 in a row, and I honestly don't care if he's falling on one leg. If he's open, he'll probably make it, you know, 40, 45% of the time, which is Honestly, it's perfect because people will run out to guard him so deep from three, and it just opens up a lot of lanes for for the slashers, you know, like Jabari and Giannis, obviously. Let's talk about the Tony Snell-Michael Carter-Williams trade, which was made 
right before the season, shortly after the unfortunate Chris Middleton injury. And Snell has started every game he's played in this season. He's started 36 games. He's only missed one game so far this season. And maybe I just haven't seen enough of him, but he's looked surprisingly decent in that role, especially since he struggled so mightily to even hold on to end-of-the-bench rotation minutes in Chicago. When John Hammond made that trade to send away Michael Carter-Williams, I thought that the Bucks could have gotten more in return, but Tony Snell has honestly, after a pretty rough start to the season, I think he was he was shooting about five threes a game. It was only making 30% of those. He's shot that average up to 35% now on a large, a large amount of attempts per game. And he brings solid defense. You know, he knows his role. We can, Not everyone could be Giannis and Jabari, you know, obviously. And Tony Snell, once Middleton comes back, fits in perfectly into that bench kind of role of being able to hit some open jumpers, playing solid defense, keeping the Bucks in the game, you know, as long as they need to. And then Chris Middleton can come back in. Yeah, you talked about his rough start early in the season. In the first two months of the year, by which I mean two games in October and the month of (laughs) November, he shot 28.6% from three-point range. And since then, he is at 40% from three. And it's about the same number of attempts per game. And in the beginning of the season, that looked really troubling, that he was basically the only guy that the Bucks could put out there at the two. And since that really rough two games of October and November, he's been one of the better three-point shooters on this team. And his defense has been definitely above average, and that's really all they need out of him. Yeah. But let's move on to the offseason acquisition. In a way, the Bucks rookies. So Thon Maker, who was drafted number 10 overall, and he was drafted basically just as a project. He's played very sparingly. He's shown some interesting things in his very limited time on the court. One quick thing about Don Maker. When I heard about Don, I immediately dismissed him. I was like, this kid is not going to do anything. He's a nobody. And then he got drafted by the Bucks, and I, I nearly lost my mind. I was, what is this? Why would we pick him when there's so much other talent available? And he he's impressed me, honestly, because you hear stories about his work ethic. He worked out with Kevin Garnett, and Kevin Garnett was lauding so much praise on him. He, he can shoot the three ball. He's got some handling. He just needs to bulk up, and he'll be able to grab those rebounds, bang with those guys down low. He's definitely going to fit into the, the Bucks' future, I think. And the jokes have been around about, is he really 19? But I'd be willing to bet that Milwaukee wouldn't have taken him at 10 if they hadn't done some research to prove that Maybe even if he isn't 19, he's at least pretty close to it. He's young, and he's got a lot of room left to grow both into his body, given how skinny he is at this point, and into his game. And the Bucks don't need him to be great right away. And, you know, he will get some occasional minutes this season, and that's fine. He doesn't need to play more than that. He's a player that they're going to look at to be a piece maybe two or three years down the line. But the other rookie that the Bucks brought in has been one of their better players and is probably in the top three at this point in terms of rookie of the year voting in Malcolm Brogdon. I'd say he's obviously the best rookie of this year's class. 
but that's because we haven't seen Ben Simmons, and obviously Joel Embiid is not of this rookie class, but Brogdon has been absolutely incredible off the bench and in a starting role for the Bucks. Yeah, the thing about Brogdon is people talk about he's got such an NBA-ready game, he came out of college having finished all four years, and he's going to come in and contribute right away, and sure enough, he's done exactly that. He's shooting a little over 42% from three. He's shooting, I think, above 90% from the free throw line? 88% at this point. And he's also third on the team in assists behind Delvadova and Giannis. Of course. And he's been a revelation. I mean, you can't get drafted in the second round and not have had a lot of teams pass on you. And especially given how weak this class has looked so far, and granted, as you mentioned, that's without Ben Simmons. Mm -hmm. But for the 36th overall pick, he's looked incredible so far. He's playing like a top 10 pick right now. And honestly, looking back at the draft outside of, you know, maybe Jamal Murray, Buddy Heald, I don't think there's anyone else I would rather have. Simmons, obviously. But Brogdon, while he's in a point guard role right now, I think that he would be better off in a shooting guard role to a certain extent because unlike Delhi, he doesn't move the ball as well. I know he got like a triple-double, but he's definitely a better scorer than he is passer. However, you know, it's difficult. But if Tony Snell leaves in the offseason because he is on his last year and we'll have to maybe sign him to a larger contract, I could definitely see Brogdon filling in that role, especially if Rashad Vaughn continues to struggle. He was playing really well at the start of the year, then he got injured, he lost confidence, and now he's back to the end of the bench. Malcolm Brogdon, definitely the fourth best player with Chris Middleton out. One of the many benefits of having Giannis on your team, and we will talk about Giannis quite a bit more later in the podcast, but one of the big benefits of having someone like Giannis on your team is you can put Brogdon in as the point guard defender on defense and sort of the shooting guard role on offense. And Mm -hmm. then especially once you have Chris Middleton back, you can run out a lineup of Giannis, Brogdon, Middleton, Jabari Parker, and insert center here. And (laughs) speaking of insert center here, let's move on to the big man rotation. John Henson has started 28 of the 37 games to the Bucks this season. Miles Plumley has started the other nine at center, and Greg Monroe has not started a single game, but he is averaging more minutes per game than Henson. And one of the more interesting trends in recent years has been that a lot of the Monroe-esque big men, these post-up behemoths that can't really do much on the defensive end, but can work opposing big men in the post and can rebound decently well are becoming bench players and you've seen it with Zach Randolph this season and you've seen it with Al Jefferson this season so do you think the Henson-Monroe tandem sort of works best as this rotation of Henson starts but Monroe gets the line share of the minutes? Definitely. Monroe honestly has been our third best player this year right behind Jabari because he he on the defensive end, is actually good. He is no longer, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's, he slimmed down. He lost, I think, 10 or 15 pounds over the offseason. You could tell. It's not just like one of those reports saying X player lost X amount of weight. Greg Monroe showed up skinnier. He moves better. He's averaging 1.3 steals per game in the least amount of minutes he's played in his career, which is a career high. So he's definitely, he's definitely playing his best basketball, I think of his career right now. He's honestly able to do it all. He can shoot a mid-range jumper. He's got some brilliant post moves. He can rebound the basketball. I'm very impressed by Greg Monroe this year. And honestly, 
I'm hoping that he opts in for next year. The Bucks and him can come to some sort of agreement to some contract extension because I honestly think that he obviously isn't the best center in the league, but he is better than Plumlee and Henson. I guess I sort of was more scarred by the Monroe of last season and more his years with the Pistons, but he is actually currently tied with Giannis for the best defensive rating on the team, which is you know, no small feat, especially given yep. that the Bucks are 10th in the league in opponent points per game. Quickly before we move on, I guess you sort of clarified this already, but do you think Plumlee should just sort of stay out of the rotation for the rest of the year? Plumlee, it's tough, right? Because we're paying him, I think it's four years, 52 million. Henson's getting four years, 44 million. And I think he's in the second year of that contract. It's tough because that's a lot of money to tie up in three big men. Henson, he is barely scraping by as league average. But when Plum Lee is out there, it's a totally different guy. Me and a lot of other Bucks fans are hoping that once Chris Middleton comes back and he has his gravity, that Plum Lee will be able to play like he did the second half of last season where he was super athletic, you know, would run down the floor, get open dunks, get lobs, get rebounds, and just do the bare minimum, essentially. That got him $52 million. All right, let's move into the wing and guard rotation. And we talked about this a little bit earlier, but going forward, do you think Brogdon has supplanted Delavidova as the starter in that backcourt? Or do you think once Deli's sort of fully healthy, Jason Kidd's going to go back to starting him and giving Brogdon a big roll off the bench? Honestly, well, obviously I don't know what Kid's going to do, but I think that Delhi fits in well with that starting group because Brogdon likes to score and he has absolutely amazing chemistry with Greg Monroe in that second unit. I think that Delhi, with his ball movement and his defense should be starting over Brogdon, but Brogdon I think should be getting 30 minutes a game. Delhi gets about, you know, 24, but Delhi starting the game, I, I think he gels with that, that starting unit a lot better than Brogdon does. So... The last spot in that guard rotation is sort of a toss-up between Jason Terry and Rashad Vaughn. Terry, despite being 39, has looked a lot better than Rashad has so far this season. He's shooting better from three. He's been more effective with the ball. He is turning it over ever so slightly more, but... You know, he's also got the ball in his hands a lot more than Vaughn does. So do you think Vaughn is just sort of going to be out of the rotation going forward in favor of Terry shooting, basically? A couple years ago, back when we made the playoffs as the sixth seed, Jared Dudley was a huge veteran presence for us. Jared Dudley, Ursinelli Sova, and Zaza Pachulia. The year after that, we were missing that because we lost all three of those guys. With the signing of Jason Terry, the Bucks have regained their communication, their uh, offensive swagger to a certain degree, as well as their defensive swagger, because what Jason Terry brings is obviously that veteran leadership, and it's not just something reporters talk about. He brings uh, professionalism, he brings communication that helps everyone else start to communicate on the defensive end, which I think is part of the reason why their defensive efficiency or the defensive rating is so high because two years ago when we made the playoffs we had those veterans who could communicate and weren't afraid to talk on the court like Jared Dudley so I I think that all aside I think Rashad Vaughn should be the fourth guard because Rashad Vaughn is the future essentially he's part of this Jabari Parker Chris Middleton Giannis Antetokounmpo core to a certain degree because he can 
shoot the ball. He can shoot the ball very well. And we saw that at the start of the year when he was getting a bunch of minutes and Jason Kidd showed his favor and the confidence that he had in Rashad Vaughn to be the first shooting guard off the bench. I think there was one game where he had like 17 points or 20 points. He had his career high and it looked like it was a new guy. He goes down, he gets injured briefly, he comes back, he lost his spot to, to Jason Terry. I think that all Rashad Vaughn needs is some confidence from Jason Kidd, and he can be a guy that is relied upon to bring some instant scoring off the bench. Speaking of confidence and instant scoring off the bench, Michael Beasley. He scores, he scores a lot. The thing I love about Michael Beasley is he is seventh on the team in field goal attempts per game, which seems, you know, seems a bit low until you realize that everybody above him is playing five or more minutes per game more than he is. And the only one that's not playing, the only two that aren't playing 10 minutes a game more than him are Greg Monroe and Malcolm Brogdon. He's been more efficient this year than every year of his career other than last year. Last year, he was a totally different player. And I was so happy when we got him for Tyler Ennis, who honestly probably will never amount to much in the league. Because Michael Beasley, he went to China. He was gone. He went to China. And I think that humbled him. I, I think it really did because that's when he realized he he had to get his act together because he was, wasn't was taking it seriously. It really was just overall disappointing outside of a couple of flashes of brilliance. Which Because we all knew he could be a great player because he was one of the best players college basketball's ever seen. But he comes back to Houston last year. He's some instant scoring off the bench, and he's just done that and more, honestly, with the Bucks this year. I'm not sure if you saw the game last night or if you saw highlights, but he came in and he scored 28 points in a night where Giannis played nine minutes and had a minus 15. And, and it was beautiful. Honestly, he just took Danny Green to town time and time again. He's probably the best finisher on the Bucks outside of Jabari or Giannis. He's so good. And he just brings that instant scoring off the bench. Really desperately need because all we have right now is Brogdon who can, you know, score a little bit and Greg Monroe. But outside of that, it's... It's the Michael Beasley show. Yeah, defensively, he's been less awful than usual, which is really all you need yeah. from him is yeah. just not abjectly awful on the defensive end. <laughs> we will talk about that Michael Beasley game later, but let's talk quickly about the early season for the Bucks before we get into the two most important Bucks. But they've been up and down. It's been quite interesting. They've pulled off solid stretches, winning a few games in a row, and then drop a couple, and then they'll win big, and then they'll drop a couple more. And they're currently at 19 and 18, which leaves them sixth in the Eastern Conference. But that's not saying much, because, you know, one game in between everyone. That's true. But their expected win-loss is 21 and 16. So I guess the question is, do they have a shot at one of the top four seeds in the East and thus the ever-important home court advantage? You know, honestly, I talk myself in and out of a playoff for pretty much every other game when I watch the Bucks. <laughs> honestly, do they have a shot? Yes, but they have to shore up their fourth quarter. Right now, they are by far the worst team in the fourth quarter. They're, I think, 30th in field goal percentage, 30th in three-point percentage, they suck in the clutch, and clutch is defined as games within five points or less and within the last five minutes. And watching the fourth quarter as a Bucks fan is 
just heart-wrenching because they'll be up big in the third quarter at the end of the third quarter and then all of a sudden they'll give up a run they'll stop hitting shots if they can shore up that fourth quarter i think that they can edge out atlanta or the pacers or who's ever fighting for that fourth spot i think the other thing worth noting with milwaukee is that chris middleton is set to miss most of the regular season after that horrific hamstring tear but he's slated to be back by mid-march last i heard yeah i've actually heard that he might come back after the all-star break Hmm, interesting I don't know how truthful that may be, but I've definitely heard some reports. And there's some videos, you know, on, on the Bucks' Facebook page and Twitter page of him doing workouts, of him dribbling the basketball, shooting the basketball. So who knows, right? I'd certainly love to see him back by the All-Star break. But I think either way, the more important factor is that he should be back and with a couple of games under his belt by the time the playoffs roll around. With Chris Middleton, I I honestly, and I think I can unbiasedly say this, I think they're a top four team in the East, possibly even a top three team with the way they've been playing, because Middleton just provides so much, especially because his replacement right now is Tony Snell. I mean, I thought he was the Bucks' best player last season. I thought so too. And of course, now he's been eclipsed by the two players that we're about to talk about. So let's start with... Jabari Parker, who is having a career year that would be more impressive if his teammate wasn't having an even more impressive career, but (laughs) Jabari's currently averaging 20.7 points a game, 5.8 rebounds, both of which are career highs, 2.6 assists per game, also career high, and he's also only at 1.5 turnovers a game, which is the same as last season, despite upping his assist rate. And I think the most impressive part for Jabari is that he has gone from shooting one three-pointer every two games last season and making a little over... 25% of them, to this year averaging three and a half, three-point attempts per game and making a little over 41% of them. And that has been huge for this Bucks offense. I think with Middleton out, that's been huge for the development of both Jabari and Giannis, and it's definitely showed with Jabari. In his first two seasons, maybe not a lot of people know this, but Jason Kidd didn't want him to shoot threes at all. He wanted Jabari to solely focus on his inside game, and I think that was, you know, really smart. Because the Bucks obviously weren't going to be contending in the past few years. And, well, obviously he was injured for the majority of his rookie season. But he came out of college being lauded as a jump shooter who had an NBA-ready body and who could obviously put the ball in the basket. He, Jabari Parker on the defensive end, obviously is another story. Probably hurts the Bucks plenty on that side, but he helps so much on the offensive end with his 41% from the three-point range uh, shooting as well as 50% overall. It's, it's incredible to watch him and Giannis play, and they're honestly probably two of the best in-game dunkers in the NBA, and we're just so spoiled to have them both on the same team. He has been better on defense this year, certainly, than in the past. And, you know, maybe he won't ever get to above average level on the defensive end, but the Bucks really just need him to be passable. So Jabari is averaging eight field goal attempts from less than five feet from the basket, according to NBA.com, and he's shooting 62.2% on those. Now, there's one other player in the top five on this list that we're going to talk about now. In fact, he's number two, just barely behind DeMarcus Cousins, and that is... Giannis, who has had one of the most 
remarkable seasons I can remember. And granted, that seems absurd to say, given what we've seen from Russell Westbrook and James Harden so far this year. I guess the thing that really amazes me about what Giannis is doing is he's almost seven feet tall and he's their point guard. And he's leading the team in every statistical category. He's leading in rebounds. He's leading in assists. He's leading in steals. He's leading in blocks. He's leading in points. He's currently at 23.3 points per game, 8.8 rebounds a game, 5.6 assists per game, just barely under two steals per game, just barely at two blocks a game. And I think the most incredible part in my mind is that he's doing all of this while still being a pretty terrible three-point shooter. And the fact that he's able to get to the rim almost at will when every defense that's trying to stop him knows that that's where he's trying to go and also knows that that's where Jabari's going to be trying to go as well, and they just can't do anything about it. Speaks to what happens when you can be six foot eleven, have a seven foot three wingspan, and literally be able to take two steps from the three point line and dunk the ball. Yeah, it's amazing. When we drafted him, when I saw him play his first year, I knew we had something special. I didn't know how good he was going to be. I didn't imagine he would be top ten in the NBA by his fourth year. In my biased opinion, I think he's top ten, and even his. Three pointer, which you mentioned, has recently in the past past like ten games or so, has definitely improved. You can see it. He's shooting it with confidence. He's got decent mechanics as well. There's no hitch. You don't see a Michael Kidd Gilchrist type shot form either. So you don't really have to worry about that. If I had to complain about Giannis, it has to be his fourth quarter. He is one of the reasons why we struggle so much in the clutch. Obviously, a lot of people saw the New York Knicks fadeaway jumper to win the game, which is incredible. But too many times, I think he'll do too much one-on-one. He'll do way too much dribbling. The Bucks are at their best when they move the ball, which is what we saw last night with the Spurs game. And when he gets into that one-on-one street ball kind of mode, the Bucks definitely lose a lot of their skill and a lot of their efficiency. So that's my one complaint that I have about Giannis, honestly. Yeah, it's especially problematic that he's doing that fourth quarter hero ball stuff when he is a really solid passer and he's got teammates that can make three-pointers. I mean, Jabari's shooting great from three-point range. You've got Brogdon shooting like 42%. Jason Carey's just a shade under 40%. Mears is at 37.5% on a very healthy number of attempts. Tony Snell is shooting, you know, 35%. That's nothing to sneeze at either. Especially when he's going to get wide open looks every time Giannis drives to the rim and there's absolutely nothing anyone can do about it. So you said earlier that you thought he was a top 10 player. Would it be fair, do you think, to say that he's a lock for most improved player at this point? Most improved is tough. I would say yes. But the fact that he's gotten marginally better in the years before this, it wasn't like, you know, he was a nobody last year, and then all of a sudden he's this great player. He was a pretty good player. He was a top, you know, 30, top 35 player last year, at least in the second half of the season when the point guard experiment started. But this year, I think the point guard thing, him having the ball in his hands, you know, LeBron James type point forward, point guards uh, style is huge. It's It's done wonders for his confidence. It's shown off his passing ability. I think the most fun thing about Giannis's most improved candidacy, he's actually averaging fewer minutes per game this year than he was last year, and he's still he's still jumped a little over seven points a game. His rebounding has improved, his assists have improved, steals and blocks have improved. Mm-hmm. He's just he's improved in every area. He was at one point he was 
I think, in the top 20 in terms of room protection numbers, which, for a guy who mostly plays on the perimeter, is just absurd. We haven't even talked about his defense. He's a he's a top five defender. A guy averaging two blocks and two steals doesn't really exist. The guys I think that are in that same category include Akeem, David Robinson, Andre Kirilenko. Oh, he's kind of an outlier, but still a very good player. You know, that's not an easy thing to do. And obviously, I I do think that Draymond Green, Kawhi Leonard are obviously two of the best defenders. But Giannis is right there. He he's making a case for. Defensive player of the year, honestly, in my opinion. His ability to, to just stick an arm up without even having to jump and immediately blind somebody because of his seven foot three wingspan is incredible and it can't be understated because he's so quick. He's so long. He's got some great, great hands. He has huge hands, hands that are bigger than Kawhi Leonard. The thing about Giannis on the defensive end is people talk about, oh, LeBron can guard one through five. Oh, Draymond can guard one through five. Giannis might be the only player that I can think of that actually truly legitimately can guard one through five. Because Draymond, you put him against someone like Marcus All, and he's gonna struggle to defend him in the post, and that's part of why the Warriors have lost both their games to the Grizzlies this season. And LeBron is not gonna check a center for more than five minutes a game and only out of pure necessity, but Giannis can guard literally anyone. It's it's incredible. All right, let's move on to talking about some of the best and worst games for the Bucks this season. And the one I want to start with is one that we brought up a little bit earlier, which was their win against the Spurs last night. And they won that game despite, as you said, nine minutes from Giannis. And especially given that the Spurs are, you know, still the Spurs and came into this game thirty and seven on the season, the fact that Milwaukee was able to to win this game with Giannis playing so little and so poorly is really a testament to Jabari stepping up, to Michael Beasley having a ridiculous game, and just generally to this team managing to find a way to get it done against, you know, the second best team in the West and probably the second best team in basketball at this point. Outside of maybe the Cavs. Well, but the Cavs aren't trying in the regular season. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's unfair to say that any team is not trying, but the Cavs certainly aren't going for as many regular season wins as possible, let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. The Spurs, granted, they didn't have LaMarcus Aldridge, which obviously is a huge blow, but it's not like David Lee did nothing. He was, you know, five and six, seven rebounds, ten point seven rebounds in twenty six minutes. He he pulled his weight as well as Davis Bertans, who had eleven points and two assists in 19 minutes. His replacements certainly did a lot. The thing that won the Bucks this game, outside of, you know, Beasley's stellar game, as well as Jabari's 22 points, was the fact that they had 32 assists. That's that's incredible. Without their best passer, they had 32 assists, and I think that's a big part of what makes this Bucks team so good. I said this earlier in the podcast, the Bucks are at their best when they move the ball. And with Giannis out, they didn't really have one guy that could just take over. Obviously, we saw Beasley take over in the fourth quarter to a certain degree, but he can't do it like Giannis can. So the fact that they moved the ball so well, they still scored 109 points without their best player, speaks to the fact that the Bucks need to pass the ball. They need to move the ball if they want to win games. There's obviously games that we watch. They'll have 18 assists, and they'll get blown out despite a great game from Giannis because... He'll hog the ball a little too much. This game last night against the Spurs was telling, though. 
I think we talked earlier about the defense and them being a top 10 defense. We saw the holes that are in the Bucks system last night. If you watched the game, you saw Manu Ginobili was wide open in the corner for the game-winning three because our defense collapsed. Danny Green missed about three wide-open threes that he should not have missed. The Bucks need to shore up their rotations to a certain degree because Jason Kidd loves to rotate. He loves to double. He loves to throw the Bucks' length at the opposing team. And I love that too, and it works to a certain degree, but... It opens up a lot of avenues and a lot of areas on the court that can be taken advantage of by the opposing team. So we saw the good and the bad against the Spurs last night. Obviously, we eked out this incredible win, and I really think it spoke a lot to the fortitude of this Bucks team. Yeah, you talked about the importance of moving the ball, and everybody got in on the passing, and I didn't really realize the extent of that until I looked through the box score and realized that Every single player on the Bucks who played more than five minutes had an assist last night, yeah. and no one had more than six. And again, that's without the team leader in assists, Giannis, playing for more than nine minutes, and with Matthew Delavidova, who's second on the team, playing a little under 23 minutes. Everybody was moving the ball. It wasn't just, okay, Giannis is out, somebody's going to take care of the ball handling duties and spreading the ball around. It was people finding each other rather than just... Giannis has the ball in his hands and he's going to try and feed it to people. The other big Bucks win that I wanted to talk about was their game against the Cavaliers on November 29th. Bucks came into the game under 500. The Cavs came into the game 13 and 2. And the Bucks beat them by almost 20. And that third quarter, Milwaukee outscored them 34 to 20. And that was it. That was. Honestly, I, I think it was in that third quarter as well where Lou took out all the good players, because he, he hated their effort, because they were so demoralized by this Bucks team, and he put in all the scrubs. You saw Mike Dunleavy, you saw Chris Anderson, you saw Jordan McRae, James Jones, Kay Felder, guys that rarely see the court. Well, obviously Chris Anderson's injured and Mike Dunleavy's traded away, but they rarely saw the court when they were with the team. And these guys played meaningful minutes because the starters couldn't hang with the Bucks. Giannis just destroyed them with 34 points, 12 rebounds. Jabari added an 18. Beasley had 17. Everyone contributed. And again, the Bucks had 27 assists. They moved the ball. They did what they had to do. You also neglected to mention that Giannis had five steals in that game, which he's a threat to do every game at this point. I just noticed he was three blocks away from a five and five. I, you know, honestly, every game, I think there was one game where he had, he was like two blocks away or maybe even one block. It's, I'm just waiting. I think maybe not this year, but in the next two years, Giannis is going to get that five and five. Yeah. So another set of games in the positive ledger for Milwaukee. They have won all three of their meetings against the Bulls this season, and they've done it in all manner of ways. Their first game was a, Nice 11-point win over the Bulls in Milwaukee. And then their next game, they held Chicago to 69 points in Chicago. At Bradley Center South. Which was <laughs> one of the more embarrassing offensive performances of the year. But that, again, doesn't quite do justice to how thoroughly Milwaukee just stifled everything the Bulls tried to do in that game. 69 points. I can't even remember the last time a team only scored 69 points in this high-power offensive season. We've held the Bulls under 100 points every game that we've played them. And this is what goes back again to their defense. They play the swarmy defense that gives up threes. 
The Bulls are the worst, by far the worst three-point shooting team in the league. So obviously, you know, it just makes too much sense that the Bucks are going to dominate the Bulls because their defense is just too long, there's too much pressure, and the Bulls just can't deal with it because they have no shooters. Barring Jerry and Grant making one of his two shots, exactly one player on the Bulls shot above 40% in that game, which was Bobby Portis, who had a pretty decent game, especially in comparison to the rest of the team, but most of that was in garbage time anyway. And yeah, the Bulls put up two 15-point quarters. They scored 15 in the first, and they scored 15 in the third. Jimmy Butler was 3 of 14. Dwayne Wade, 5 of 14. And then their most recent game against the Bulls was another 20-point win, 116-96, again in the United Center, dubbed lovingly by you, Bradley Center South. <laughs> and it was a completely different game. Giannis put up 35 points, 9 rebounds, 8 assists, 2 steals, and 7 blocks. 7 blocks! I don't think there's anyone whose stat lines I read with more genuine shock. Other than, other than James Harden and Russell Westbrook, I don't think anyone has the same just utter shock factor that reading Giannis box scores does. I think to a certain degree, he gets glazed over so much because he's the best player in basketball, but LeBron James is doing this, you know, he's been doing this his whole career. He's, his career average is 27, 7, and 7. You have to give him credit. You really do have to give him credit. I'm not a big LeBron James fan. It's, he's, he is so good. And honestly, Giannis is just, people call him mini LeBron, LeBron light, whatever. I think he's just Russell Westbrook in a bigger guy's body. Which is, Truly frightening to think about. So let's move on to some of the, let's just say, not as strong performances from the Bucks this season. I think these two games sort of typify what you were talking about earlier with when the Bucks tend to struggle on defense and the other game where they just couldn't put up anything. So the first game was the one where they couldn't score anything, and they lost to the Dallas Mavericks, Dallas's first win of the season. They lost 86 to 75. And Jabari had a pretty decent game. He put up 16 points on 16 shots, which isn't the most efficient, but it was the most efficient of anyone on the team, barring the 5 for 10 from Greg Monroe and the 2 for 3 from Miles Plumley. Giannis shot 33%. Deli made one of his seven shots. Tony <laughs> Snell made two of his eight shots. Jason Terry went 0 for 6. They couldn't buy a basket, and especially against a Dallas team that literally had not won a game prior to this win. And I think the most troubling part of all is that this game went to overtime. It's not just that they put up 75 in a regulation game, which we've had enough. They put up 75 points in 53 minutes of basketball. Well, you know what's even worse is that I'm pretty sure they had 75 points at the end of the fourth quarter. They had 74 points at the end of the fourth quarter. They scored one point in the overtime. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the most troubling thing about this game is Giannis's two assists. I don't care about his four of 12. I care about his two assists and his five turnovers. That is horrendous. And you look down, you look at their total, 14. 14 assists for the game. Obviously, you're not going to have that many 75 points, but with hardly any free throws yet, 12 free throws, that's pathetic. Honestly, it's not good. With five turnovers and two assists, that's what I was talking about earlier. Bucks move the ball, they're a good team. Bucks don't move the ball, they suck. And another game in which they did a slightly better job of moving the ball, but struggled in their three-point defense, which you said was a big problem. 
I still have nightmares about Shabazz Muhammad. Well, we're going to that game. Their December 30th loss against the Timberwolves, where Shabazz Muhammad went 4 of 5 from beyond the arc. Zach Levine was 6 of 9. Funnily enough, neither Wiggins nor Towns made a three-pointer. But between Muhammad, Nemanja, Bielica, and Zach Levine, just those three guys, 71% from three. And it's not like the Timberwolves are a fantastic three-point shooting team, either. As a team, they shot 52%. That's bad. You know, the Timberwolves, they are a good team, and I don't think they're as bad as the record says they are. I just think they're young and still a little inconsistent, and the Bucks ended up on a bad end of, of this game. Yeah, the troubling part was that both Giannis and Jabari had pretty solid games. They both scored 20 points. Jabari shot 51% from the field. Giannis shot almost 80% from the field. And Michael Beasley had a decent game, too. 12 points on 10 field goal attempts, but the rest of the team just didn't show up on either end. The defensive end, and I think rebounding, if I remember correctly, was a big problem this game. Or maybe not so much, but when Giannis and Jabari have good games and we still lose, that points directly to the defense. Because it's just if they both have a good game, we should not be having problems on the offensive end. So guys weren't guarding Shabazz Muhammad, you know, Zach Levine, and they're known shooters. Maybe, maybe not Muhammad as much, but Muhammad got hot early and nobody stepped up to defend him. You just let him keep shooting. It was, it was a tough game to watch for sure. Yeah. It's not often that you can shoot 54% from the field like Milwaukee did and still lose by almost 20. <laughs> and only, well, not only 14 turnovers, but still 14 turnovers is, you know, that much. And it's only three more than, than the Wolves. But the Wolves, yeah, they shot 56%. All right. So is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I just I just look forward to uh, to Middleton returning, <laughs> seeing what this Bucks team can really do when he, once he's back. Yeah, this team will be a lot more fun once Middleton gets back into the lineup, and hopefully that'll help them make a decent run in the postseason. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, he's Andrew Buchanan. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew B two four eight A N D R E W B two four eight. You can also find his work on the hashtag Basketball website. You can follow me on Twitter at N B A underscore J O H N S O N. You can also find my work on the hashtag Basketball website. You can also follow the site at hash Basketball H A S H. B-A-S-K-E-T-B-A-L-L. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, please take a minute to rate us and review us. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on TuneIn. And if you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.